Hi, this is Pastor Wilson with Renew Church OC. Thanks for joining our podcast today. We're entering into the Advent season through the book of Luke as we see the birth of Jesus and his childhood years. We're really excited to share that with you and hope that this season will be enveloped by remembering Jesus coming to be with us. We'd also want to invite you to partner with us financially. We have a few missionaries that you can find on our website that have really blessed our church by doing college ministry. And also we have seminarians that we want to invite our listeners to support as well. We're starting a church residency program, praying to uh, see God raise up the next generation of pastors at Renew Church. You can find all that information at the description section. Enjoy the podcast. All right. Thanks so much for uh, sharing. And we'll have more time for you at the end of the sermon to share. Uh, You could share through the second set of worship if you would like. I'm going to go ahead and pray for us. And then we'll get into the word of the Lord. God, we just um, put in front of you um, all the ways that we felt hurt. Um, For many of us, we put in front of you all the ways that we've hurt others. And we ask, Lord, that um, we would see your face today and see the way that you've handled um, spiritual abuse and that you would make us resilient, Lord, that we have clear eyes as we move forward um, to find you in the midst of of things that um, have hurt us in the past or will hurt us in the future. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going through the book of Luke, and we're at the third temptation of Jesus. We're going to do a little series break after uh, the Sunday and then head back in, in Easter. So I'll read the passage to you. It's, uh, we went through the first two temptations the last two weeks, and then we'll uh, talk about the third one today. Jesus, filled with the Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. For 40 days, he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is, not, it is written, man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I could give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, the Lord, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then we're on this uh, passage today. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. We're going to pause here and just look at this little phrase, if you are the son of God. I think a lot of spiritual abuse um, happens when... Our identity, our standing before God is attacked. When we're questioning because of someone else, whether we're saved, whether we're a good enough Christian, whether we're doing enough, whether God loves us. And this could happen in subliminal ways, right? Hey, if you're not tithing, if you're not serving in this way, if you're not coming to church this often, that your salvation is at risk, that um, you're not being a good Christian, whatever a good Christian means. And there's these identity attacks on us. And cults are just known for holding your salvation hostage. If you don't know what they, don't do what they say, 
then you'll lose your salvation. And then the really twisted part is that Satan is using the word of God. That's why it's spiritual abuse, because there's an integration with God's word or position in the church in the abuse. And he's twisting God's word here in order to do something really dark. If I keep reading this passage over and over again, and I'm, I see it in a different light because I see Satan trying to get Jesus to commit suicide, trying to get Jesus to end his life, jump from the highest point of the highest building, and using God's word to do that. And as I've had conversations with people who wrestle with suicidal ideation, sometimes the voice of Satan uses spiritual language. Hey, you could be with God. You don't have to suffer anymore. If you, one person told me that um, the voice was, I'll, I'll attack your parents if you don't do self-harm. And you could be like Jesus and sacrifice for them. Satan will twist everything he has in his hands, even the word of God. Here, when he uh, quotes Psalm 91, the reason why it's spiritual abuse and out of context is because in this psalm, God is saying to the psalmist that I'm going to protect you even in battle, even in warfare. You can trust me in your hands. Whether arrows are flying at you in the heat of, heat of battle, if you're pressed against a cave or a cliff by your enemy and you fall off, you can trust me to save you. So it's out of context because he's not telling people to jump off of things. He's telling people it's not this voluntary risking your life. He's saying that in danger, I will protect you. Jesus answered, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him for an opportune time. I just want to go back to what does it mean to not put the Lord your God to the test? And again, Jesus is, is showing us what it means to be the perfect Israel, to be the second Adam. In Israel's journey towards the promised land, they often tested God, right? If you loved us, if you, if you were really with us, you would provide for us. We wouldn't, we, we wouldn't be hungry, right? We would have meat. So they always tested God. And Jesus here is saying, do not test the Lord your God as uh, the perfect Israelite. Next slide. What does testing God mean? Testing God is staking who God is, his nature, his goodness, his love for you on an external outcome. And it usually happens with if-then prayers or statements. If you love me, then I'll get married. If you love me, then I'll be able to have a child. If you love me, then I wouldn't, I wouldn't be suffering in this way. You'll take away my suffering. And you're basically trying to hold God hostage to say uh, you're, you're betting your relationship. You're betting you being a, stopping a sin or reading your Bible every day uh, so that God would produce something in your life. Um, what does testing God reveal when we pray these prayers? It reveals that he is insufficient in himself. His greatest gift to us is himself, his, the spirit living inside of us, his unconditional love, his fellowship with us. And when we say, if you love me, then give me this, we're saying that that's not enough. It also shows us what we really want. That we don't really want God, we want this other thing. And we're willing to trade God for it. It shows us that we want to be like God, knowing good and evil. We're, we're saying that, God, you have to give me this thing, or you have to take away this, and I know what's truly good and evil in my life. I'm playing God. 
Lastly, we're asking without trust and surrender. We can ask God. We can go to him to petition. We can ask questions. We could be disappointed. He often misses our expectations. And as we wrestle with those fears, those doubts, those questions, we do it in a posture of surrender and trust. When, we're, when we don't have a job, we're saying, God, I'm trusting you to provide for my family. As opposed to, if you don't give me a job, I'm going to walk away from you. Or if you love me, I would have a job by now. In the most severe cases, what we're saying in our, in our testing of God is that what he's done in the past doesn't really matter. And when you look, about, look at Pharaoh, he displays this. God is giving him the greatest miracles on earth, even in the form of plagues, some as just mere signs of uh, a, a staff turning into a serpent. And he would reject God. He would test God again. And at a certain point, instead of Pharaoh hardening his heart, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Or if you think about Satan, who fell out of the throne room of God and rebelled against him, letting pride seep into his heart, he's unredeemable because God has showed him all of himself. And in the full glory and presence of God, he decided to say no. It is at those points in a person's life or in a being's life that there's no recourse because God's already showed him all of himself. So to go into if-then prayers, um, for me, who knows the forgiveness and love of God, and to stake all of that on a result is um, a scary thing to do. Next slide. <clears throat> but I think what could be helpful is as God calls us not to test him, that we should be testing the teaching of God's word as well as the teacher of God's word. And as we delineate the two, we're able to also disentangle the abuse from the spiritual. And that's probably one of the most, uh, one of the ways that we find healing. There's many ways, but this is one of them, is that we, we say, God, where, where's the abuse and the hurt, and how do I remove who you are and your good word from it? So for me, after this uh, person yelled at me, one of the things that really helped me was I removed his pastor title from my head. You know, I, I stopped calling him pastor name. I would just call him by his first name in my mind and as I spoke about him. Because I said, first of all, he's definitely not my pastor. We don't have that relationship. And second of all, I'm not sure if he's supposed to be a pastor because if you're easily angered, that disqualifies you from ministry. And so now I've decoupled and made kind of my healing process a little bit less complicated because I'm not... Uh, entangling it with the spiritual. But that's very difficult to do depending on their bond with you and the breach of trust. There's someone who, as a pastor, really broke his trust with a person in the congregation, and he was telling um, my friend pastor, when I read the word, I still hear that pastor's voice. I can't unhear his teaching. So, uh, so sometimes it takes years. Sometimes it takes decades. It's not an easy task. But, but as we work through some of our tr spiritual trauma, I hope that we would start to disentangle and uncouple God's perfection, his love, his grace, his perfect word from misteaching and, and poor teachers.
if there's any comfort, I mean, I've gotten a little, I've gotten comfort from the word. One of them is that there's always been people who have abused and weaponized the Bible. So it's not like a, you know, not a Asian American thing, not a 21st century thing. It's just always been there forever. So Jeremiah in the Old Testament, God gives these really strong accusations, right? He says, these prophets are prophesying lies in my name which I think is the most blatant violation of do not take the name of the Lord in vain. I, I don't think that's primarily speaking about OMG. I think it's speaking about taking his word and, and representing him, but doing it in an abusive way. And that's what was happening with the prophets. They called themselves prophets, people who brought God to the people. They're prophesying in his name, but it's lies. And what does he say? I have not sent them or appointed them or spoken to them. They are prophesying to you false visions, divinations. They are prophesying through, the, through demons, idolatries, and delusions of their own mind. And then Jesus, thousands of years later, watch out for false prophets. And you can include that pastors, uh, teachers, anyone who holds a position of authority in the church. They come to you in sheep's clothing. But inwardly, they are furious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good fruit uh, tree bears good fruit, and a bad tree bears bad fruit. What I love about Jesus' teaching is that he's not saying, he's not focused on the teaching and the handling of God's word. He's focused on the character of the person, the teacher. Because I've seen people masterfully teach the word of God in context, but do it in a way of control and manipulation and guilt. <clears throat> Lastly, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 to 4, for a time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. So there's people in our generation and in every generation 2,000 years ago that want to believe something and will find a teacher that will show them, hey, it's okay to sit in this way. It's okay to be greedy. It's okay to, be, to demonize another group of people. And they'll, they'll just want to hear that. And so they'll gravitate toward them. I was talking to, again, our church therapist. And one of the things that... Uh, a therapist was saying is that we have to ask why we're drawn to certain leaders when they're toxic. That's a question in a Mars Hill, Rise and Fall of Mars Hill episode. They kind of do this introspection, like, why did I want to be under a narcissistic leader? What about him and me made me want to follow him? <clears throat> okay, so... How do we test the teaching of God's word? I, I think in, on, the, on the most fundamental level, we need to know scripture and how to interpret it. If you don't know the Bible, like if you're, okay, if, I'm, if, you're, if you're telling me, hey, I'm a doctor and this random medical fact, right, I will believe you because I don't have a degree in anything medicine. Josh can lie to me all day and I'll be like, I believe you so much. 
do I have cancer? Maybe I do have cancer. Anything he says, right? Dr. Ken can lie to me because I have no expertise in this area. I've been lied to by mechanics all the time, right? Oh, your tread is a little, like I see tread. I think I know what tread is. It's that gap between the, the, the rubbers, right? No, that's not it at all. You need new tires. Okay, give me new tires. Are we like that with the word of the Lord? Where because of our lack of knowledge, we have no idea how to discern whether we are being fed truth or lies. Uh, I've tried to design our church in a way in which we help you engage God's word. Um, that one of my greatest goals as a pastor is that you would know God's word, you would come face to face with it, you would read it, you would interpret it, and you would have tools to discern whether it's, it's uh, out of context, whether it's, the, whether it's Satan speaking God's word to you. So every morning, we have daily devotionals. We try to publicize this every time I come up because I think this is like the most important thing you can do as a Christian to grow your faith. We're in the book of Hebrews after that, and we love Hebrews because it's pulling on our last two books, Genesis and Exodus, showing us how Jesus is a continuation of what God has been doing from the beginning of history through the Israelites. And then we're going to venture from Hebrews to Revelations and see how Jesus spans into the end times. And then we're going to do a palate cleanser in Romans <laughs> so that you guys don't drop out of college. Okay. <laughs> very exciting. Very exciting. Join us for daily devotionals on our church website under events. In our small groups, um, no one's preaching and teaching. We're all gathering around God's word, and we're trying to give you tools on how to interpret the word of God. And for you to have an opportunity to make mistakes, to guess at things, and that as a community, we would direct each other to the word of God. And then on Sunday, we would teach about the same word you've been studying in your small groups. Um, in our service, we try to go through the books of the Bible. About 70% of the time, we walk through a book of the Bible. Because that's the easiest way for you to know whether I'm speaking truth. If I take like 10 verses and tie it into some of the points I want to make, it's very hard to look at the passage and say, oh, I see how he's making these points, okay? <clears throat> Secondly, we want to test the giver of God's word, e.g., uh, the pastor. But all of us, in some ways, are givers of God's word. You might be hearing a word from a coworker or a friend. You yourself are to be a giver of God's word to your families, to your friends, to the people who don't know the Lord, to your small group, in our service as we pray for one another. But here's like an amazing statement from Hebrews chapter 5. We just went through in our devotional, pulled it right out of our time there, where it represents my core value in being a pastor at Renew and the value I would like all our pastors to have. And anyone taking any kind of spiritual authority in small group um, or otherwise. He's talking about the high priest specifically here, but I'm applying it to anyone uh, who has spiritual authority. He, priest, is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. And no one takes this honor on him, but he receives it when called by God as Aaron was. So the primary voice and posture of someone giving you God's word is gentleness, and I would say add humility. Why is that? Because they have a deep awareness of their own weaknesses. There's a deep awareness of their own sin and weakness and need of the Lord. 
And secondly, they don't take this honor, meaning that they don't promote themselves. It's, it's not about saying, hey, I'm more spiritual than everyone around me. That's why I'm teaching. It's simply a calling of the Lord. And it's, as, it's the same as all the other callings in this room. A businessman, a medical professional, a teacher. I'm just called to do something else, right? I'm called to teach God's word, not because I'm higher or better or more mature, but it's simply a calling, and, and it's from the Lord. Next slide. <clears throat> this is me just like vomiting on a, a, a slide. So <laughs> it's easy to assume the giver of God's word, uh, e.g. me, um, is actually living out the word of God perfectly, right? Uh, if I can share the word of God well, then the assumption is that, oh, he's doing all of these things. But for me, the most humbling and difficult part of preaching is that I'm sharing the perfect word and living an imperfect life. I'm sharing the perfect word, but I'm an imperfect mouthpiece. And the way that I try to litigate against you assuming that I'm doing everything I'm preaching is that I try to spend time showing you the gap between my life and the word of the Lord. So I bring to you some of my hardest struggles in addiction. I bring to you some of my worst moments as a parent, right? Not the most, but some of, some of the bad ones. And uh, I tell you how I'm violating zoo rules <laughs> and reaching into caves of wild animals. Um, and, and that's to show you that, hey, I'm, I'm on the journey with you. I haven't closed the gap. I've learned this from a scholastic standpoint. I've read commentaries and seen bits and pieces of my life that I'm trying, but there's a gap. I think unhealthy pastors. So I fit in the healthy pastor category is what I'm saying. I'm saying was, that's what I'm trying to say. Unhealthy pastors will take advantage of this assumption or assume it on themselves, right? So an unhealthy pastor will say, because I am able to preach God's word, therefore I am the word of God. Because I know God's word, I'm living it perfectly. And you can just tell by the way people talk to you, right? If I, like, I've been in sermons where I, you know, I feel like a terrible Christian because they're just yelling at me the whole time. And, um, and I just think, like, man, this sucks. So anyways, uh, talking down on people, using coercion, anger, shame, and guilt. And I would definitely admit to you that, especially in my... <coughs> I don't have COVID, I have like this allergy thing in my chest. <laughs> Pretty sure. So um, <laughs> those allergies were bad. Um, anyways, <laughs> sorry, oh, I have so many jokes in my head, but I'm trying to not tell them. Okay, so um, I would say in my 20s that I often pulled shame and guilt as a way of ending a sermon, as a way of asking someone to serve, as a way of showing superiority over other people. I think it was part of my church culture. I think it was what I modeled. But I know I've heard people doing that. And I, and I think, like, I'm not immune to that now, you know? So I hope that there's people around me who share, like, hey, when you, when you asked me to do that, there was, like, some condescension there. There was a little bit of, of shaming there. Or you could talk to one of the elders. But I'm, I'm just telling you that in this whole realm of hurting people, that I wasn't just a victim. I also participated in uh, wielding God's word with pride and, um, and trying to get people to do things, you know, in terms of serving or fitting into a box. Here are other red flags. Um, again, therapy group that 
Jin kind of threw out. Arrogant, prideful leadership, not open to accountability or correction, manipulation and control over uh, time, <coughs> finances, relationships, unquestioned authority, atmosphere of secrecy, <coughs> allergies, elitist attitude, us versus them, uh, superiority, any leader positioning themselves uh, by playing God. So in the next slide, I actually had this slide and I just ended up doing a side-by-side -side comparison of the ways that we've constructed our church. Again, we're not going to be perfect. We're still going to hurt people. Uh, we're not doing any of these things perfectly. But here are the things that we're trying to do in order to be a healthy church and not the list that our therapist gave us, okay? So um, I love pulpit sharing. And over the next seven weeks, I'm preaching once. You're going to hear from a lot of our staff, the mothers and fathers of the church. And I'm still working full time. Don't cut my salary. I'm still giving you 40 plus hours, right? But um, the reason why we're doing that is we don't want one authoritative voice. And it's easy to think of churches where, like, one person's voice is the definitive answer for every theological and life question. And we, don't, we are leveraging against that. Um, we do voting, so we're elder of led and congregationally affirmed. So these big decisions we bring to a congregation and we tell them we're going to submit to this voting process from our membership. We love voting as a staff. You know, you can ask our staff quite a few times. I'm like, hey, let's vote for this and see where we land. And then uh, oftentimes my wife will vote against me and <laughs> lead a rebellion. And then uh, we do what, I, what I'm not like excited about. But for me, it's like I... I am leading, but I believe in each staffer as a leader, as an excellent shepherd in our community, and they have more access to, to their life stage than I do. So I'm trusting their ears and eyes as we move the church forward. Um, I don't want to bulldoze my agenda through my staff into the congregation. We operate with open books, and so if you're a member of the church, you're free to ask for our expenses and our income. You won't see who's giving what, of course, but you can see how much I make if you're interested. Um, and we just feel like if you're going to give to Renew, that you, you could also hold us accountable for, um, or at least take a look at how we're spending money. We're, we try to be very transparent with some of the things we're wrestling with as a community, um, some of the decisions we're thinking about making versus secrecy. Lastly, in terms of my accountability, our leadership team is accountable uh, governmentally with our finances. So I don't make any financial decisions without the approval of um, Dave and, and Jonathan with our ethics. So we encourage, and I'll maybe talk a little bit more about this, but our leadership team alongside of our wives, so Kristen, um, Joanne, and Nina, and of course, Pastor Chrissy as well, we are all available for you to talk to if you ever feel unsafe at this church. And it doesn't matter who you feel unsafe with. If I'm making you feel unsafe, if you're a sister of the church and I'm making you feel unsafe, talk to any of the women. They'll facilitate a conversation, or if it's extremely inappropriate, they'll deal with it as an elder board. There's no one that's exempt. There's no one that's bulletproof. We really want to be fully accessible to that type of situation as a staff and as an eldership. Um, if you hear about abuse, we would love for you to report that to us as well. So we just take these things really seriously, and we know that um, it's happened before, 
And we hope that our leadership team can uh, come in very early in those situations and keep this a safe community. Secondly, um, I'm super grateful for the older brothers and sisters that I have at this church. So I think about Dr. Ken and Chrissy, Dave and Joanne, Steve and Patty, Roy and Jen, my mom and dad, um, you know, as my parents, and then uh, Matt and Deanna. And it's just a privilege for me to be not the oldest and most mature Christian in the room. And I don't even think I'm the best preacher at our church. I love, I've learned so much from Pastor Dave's preaching. And just that and um, the close friendships that have decided to um, be at our church, think about Steph and Ernest, I've known them my whole life, Mark and Hiroko, 20 plus years, Ben and Liz, 20 plus years, Jonathan and I have become uh, the closest of friends, 12 years in accountability, our families like risked our lives to see each other over COVID, <laughs> you know, that's how you know your friends. Uh, Kristen, you know, very close friend to Nina. When I'm preaching, I'm thinking, I am preaching to them as well. And I'm speaking to people I respect. I'm speaking to people I look up to. I'm speaking to close friends that I'm peers with. I hope you hear that in my preaching. And, and, and I'm just really blessed to have that, that I don't feel in my hardest of hearts like miles ahead of people in this room that actually have come to my older brothers and sisters in our church with hurts, with marital, um, you know, fights and conflicts. Me and Nina have sat under people in our community. Very grateful for that. What else? Close friends. Yeah, okay. Okay. We're almost done, guys. Again, I'm not saying that it makes our church perfect or that thing, bad things won't happen here, but I hope that you have a line of reporting that will be very uh, safe um, um, in this room. So last slide. Our last, last side and a verse. Go back to Jesus and the word. These are things that I'm thinking about as you're coming out of trauma, trying to heal. Um, the first thing I'd say is I'm really grateful that you bravely stepped back into church because it's extremely difficult to do that. You're probably walking into a bunch of triggers, but you decided to show up and say, even off of all the things I've experienced in my church, I'm trying to continue to engage in the community of God. But sometimes the first step is to simply go and sit with Jesus again and remember who you are with him. Hear him say, you are my son, you are my daughter, and find that bedrock of relationship. I think about how um, Jesus tells the church in Laodicea, you know, you've become lukewarm, but go back to your first love. Go back to me. Just make eye contact with me. That's the ultimate deconstruction of your faith when you're sitting with Jesus and in his word. And that's, that's all. And I hope that if you continue to practice silence and solitude and being with the Lord, that there's nothing else your faith is contingent on but him and his word. Bring someone else into your spiritual trauma who loves Jesus and loves his people Maybe it's a therapist. Maybe it's a spiritual director or a pastor that you feel safe with. But we need to share and talk about the hard things that have gone on in our past. It's difficult because our home church or any church kind of feels like our family. And it's like, do I, I feel so bad when I talk about my mom. You know, it's like she raised me. She gave me birth. She 
she she nursed me and it's like but here are the things that you messed up in it's hard to do that but sometimes that's what it takes to heal uh, when we think about our pastors or our church um, sometimes healing comes out of the same space we were hurt so I think about um, the foster camp we run and the, the most healing part of that foster camp is that they're reattaching to adults the adults adults uh, their first adults, most often their parents, have abused and neglected them. And in the foster camp, they're able to have a redeeming experience with the adult that's safe and that is caring over their life. Um, I had a really hard childhood. Um, in, I hated elementary school. It felt like I was waking up to go to prison every day. So I remember walking my son to the first day of Preppy K in our elementary school. And I was like... May the Lord be with you. I will be picking up your remains at 2 p.m. <laughs> you know, like, that's how I felt. It's, it was traumatic, right? I was like, you might die here, but I'll come for your body. Um, every day I went to school, it was like, there were so many, so many lunches where kids would just run and, and like, circle up and push me around. I would cry on the ground, and they would leave. And on the great days, they would just neglect me, and I was alone. And it was in those moments of feeling um, abused and hurt and like abandoned by people that I found Jesus. And I often sat with him at lunch, so I wasn't alone. I often um, felt his presence, his nearness. Hey, I'll be your friend, um, first grade Wilson. Like, we'll hang out. I love, I, I, wanna, I, wanna, I wanna hang out with you. He was my first friend. I remember um, 2018-19 at this church. I felt, and you know, I hurt people, and I felt very hurt, but I'll only be talking about how people hurt me. Um, so I remember coming up on stage to preach, and one of the vocalists walks down. And I was like, hey, thanks for leading worship. And I'm taking her mic, and she said, I will be leaving this church. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Sunday, right? So like, it just like, it was just, like, a really difficult experience. And I just had a lot of people that, you know, sometimes for reasons that I couldn't understand, be mad at me and leave. One person was yelling at me because I didn't ask him to have coffee. I was like, do you know <laughs> that I can't read minds? And to randomly ask you for coffee, I would have to ask everyone in the room for coffee and randomly hit you. So... Um, anyways, during this time, I was really angry, um, but I was trying to extend grace to the people in, that were sitting in front of me, telling me how I hurt them, and then all my anger got directed to my family. And at a certain point, Nina's like, you just need to leave for a few days and think about whether we, like, whether you want the church or our family. It was like that moment. So I sat at Thousand Oaks in the hills. <clears throat> and I was, like, processing all my anger with the Lord. And he just brought me back to those moments where I was being hurt, moments where I felt like I was detaching much more than a human is able to do, um, attaching and detaching over and over again. And I just had this vision of, like, everyone at the church being blurry, kind of walking in and out. But Jesus was clear and steady and there. And he was just holding me. And he said, hey, if I'm here, will you stay? And then he brought me back to why I became a pastor. 
He said, you became a pastor because you found me as a friend, and you want other people to find me as their friend too. I hope that sometimes we go beyond the hurt that we felt into that first moment again of why we fell in love with Jesus, who he is to us, and how he loves us. And out of that, we start to build out our faith. As we take communion today, um, I just think about uh, this, the previous slide about um, Jesus on the cross, and he was often abused spiritually um, by, by the Pharisees, by the religious leaders. They, they slandered him. They tried to kill him over and over again, and then they were successful um, by sending him to the cross. And then that wasn't enough. On the cross, they repeat the words of Satan. They say, if you are the son of God, um, come down from the cross. As Jesus is hanging there, he's, his blood is being spilt. They continue to build, abuse him spiritually. They continue to um, wield his identity as a, as a son of God and have him prove it. So why we take communion this morning is to remember that, man, in this very moment that we're remembering him dying to cross for our sins and forgiving us, he also empathizes with the pain that we've gone through. That we have a great high priest who empathizes with all of the pain, who has been tempted as we do, but has not sinned. So we get to enter into the throne of grace with confidence and receive his help when we need it. Um, as we take communion, will we forgive, extend the forgiveness of the Lord as best as that we can to those who hurt us? And will we receive his forgiveness for the people we've hurt in our lives, um, especially when it comes to the church? Father, thank you so much for your blood and your body that it takes us back to that first moment of us becoming Christian, of us seeing that we've sinned against you and others and that we've been sinned against. But you have died for our sins. You have loved us. You have never failed us. And so we go back to just being with you, hearing your voice, hearing you say, you are my son, you are my daughter, who I am well pleased. And I can only imagine the way you held on to your baptism and held on to the Father's voice in the wilderness against Satan, on the cross against the religious leaders. Help us to hold on to our baptism. Help us to hold on to that first moment when we knew that we were your son, that we were your daughter, and that you loved and died for our sins. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Since I have you here, I wanted to give you a few more resources and talk about how you can invest in our ministry. If you look at the description section of this podcast, 
We have a website for the church and would love to have you come visit us when you're in town. We're in Brea, California. We also have tax deductible giving at Renew and we would love for you to invest in our church and our seminarians as we have people coming in to become future missionaries and pastors at Renew. We want to train up the next generation of pastors to reach their generation for the Lord. There's also a few more resources. At the very bottom, I do a podcast with Roy Kim, who's an MFT. It's called The Same Boat, where we talk about issues from English ministries at immigrant Chinese churches to relationships and being single. I hope that you would enjoy this podcast with us as a way to talk off the pulpit and into our daily lives. And lastly, Nina and I wrote a children's book series called To Be, helping kids integrate their faith with their occupation. And on that website, there's also the adulting journal. If you're in your 20s or 30s and you're going through transition in career, relationship, or just rethinking your spirituality, this is a great space for you to examine inward and find what God has written on your hearts and in your values. I hope that those resources uh, would connect with your heart and that you would connect with us. God bless.